Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 27. Psalm 27 will be the psalm we're looking at this morning as we continue to make our way through the book of Psalms, or the first book of Psalms, Psalm 1 to 41. We'll begin as we usually do by reading the text together. We'll read the whole psalm. We'll be looking at the whole psalm this morning. This is, of course, a psalm of David. And he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we begin in verse 1. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, as even we just sang a moment ago, we echo the words of the song when we ask the question, why was I a guest? What is the reason why in your grace and in your mercy you have caused us to be here today when we could have made the same wretched choice that thousands make to have nothing to do with you 
have no desire to worship You and to be lost in the darkness of sin. In Your grace, through the Gospel, and through Christ, You have caused us to see the beauty of the Lord in the face of Jesus. And now we long to worship even as David so long ago desired to be in your presence, to be in your tabernacle, and to worship you as he fixed his eyes and his heart on the promises that you had made to him. We desire the same thing, to be a people who worship you, who delight to worship you, and in and through that worship, would cling to the promises You've given to us in the Gospel of Christ. We pray for our time this morning, Lord, as we consider the words of this psalm and as we consider the beauty and the wonder of the worship of the Lord. That You would speak to us from Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to speak to you about the subject of worship. Worship is, no doubt, biblically a duty. Man, it is what he is required to do. It's what he's been made to do. It's not only a duty. It is, of course, much more than that. It is perhaps the highest privilege of man. It is um, one of the greatest gifts that the Lord could give to man. It is an act which has, of course, a multitude of meanings and purposes. It cannot be just summarized as one particular thing. In the same way that we could say that something like the Lord's Supper has a multitude of meanings and purposes to it, as it causes us to remember the finished work of Christ, as it causes us to be hopeful in His future return, as it gives us a visible and tangible picture of who belongs to Christ, as it has these many meanings tied to it, so also does worship have a multitude of meanings and purposes. But because the nature of man is such that he is at heart an idolater, worship can often and is often distorted. Rather than worshiping the Creator, men worship created things. They worship false gods. They worship gods that they very literally make with their own hands, or they worship gods that they just imagine in their own minds. Or, and this is even seen within the broader Christian world, rather than worship being primarily about God, God is reduced to nothing more than another kind of pagan deity or a kind of magic genie who can give me all of the things that I want and thus worship gets twisted into becoming something that is primarily about me and God is secondary. 
The point I want us to consider particularly this morning is not so much what all the errors in worship are, though we will see those, of course, by implication. But I want us to consider what is worship actually about? What do, or excuse me, why do we worship? What is good about worship? Why should we long to worship? Why should worship be one of the most important parts of our lives? And not just a kind of optional appendix that we tie on whenever it's convenient. Why is it more than just a thing that we have to do because God has commanded us to do it? That should be a sufficient reason alone to worship, but it is, it is still much more than that. And I want us to consider this matter as we work through the words of Psalm 27. Now, if you look with me, as the psalm begins, David here confesses the confidence that he has in the Lord even in and through the worst and darkest situations that he encounters. He says in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And by this, he means that the Lord is the one who gives him victory over all his foes. For the Lord to be the light of David or the light of anyone is for the Lord to act in a saving way. We see this idea in text, for example, like Micah chapter 7 and verse 8. When Micah says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. The Lord being a light is compared to, it's parallel with Micah rising even though he falls. And so it is the Lord granting victory, granting blessings to His people, even when all others, even when the whole world is trying to bring cursing and death upon them. It's an idea and an image that is rooted in the Aaronic blessing where the priests pray on behalf of God's people saying, may the Lord make His face shine upon you. And which prayer is also alluded to in the Psalms. Like in Psalm 118, verse 27, which says there, the Lord is God and He has made His light shine upon us. So the Lord's light shining upon His people. The Lord being the light of His people is an image of the Lord being the One who grants to them blessings and victory and salvation. And so here, when David begins by saying that the Lord is His light, he is referring to the Lord as His Savior and the One who acts on His behalf. Which is why he also says in the very same verse that the Lord is His salvation of whom 
shall I fear? And the Lord is the stronghold of his life. Of whom shall he be afraid? And the next two verses that follow develop this same theme even more. David here speaks of his enemies and his adversaries and foes rising up against him, of which, of course, we know from David's life, he had many throughout the whole course of his life. He had people outside of his kingdom who wanted to kill him. Pagan nations who wanted to war against him and conquer his kingdom. He had people who governed the kingdom of Israel before he himself became king who wanted to kill him. You know, men like Saul before he was deposed. He had people even from within his own house who wanted to kill him. At later points in his life, even his own son rising up in a conspiracy against him. And yet he says... Even if and when all these enemies rise against him, he will be confident and he will not fear. Why? Because the Lord will save him in accordance with the promises that cannot be broken and that have been made to him. But even as the psalm begins with David confessing that the Lord is his light and stronghold, it's important to see that these weren't just ideas and truths that were in his head. And they just stayed there. These aren't just things that David is telling himself just to get through difficult times. This isn't just some esoteric knowledge that's disconnected from the realities of his own life. These are truths that for David are strengthened and made really tangible in and through the context of worship. They're made even more real in and through worship. Worship, in a very real sense, is where all of David's hopes for salvation become present in a seed form. It's as if in worship, the glories that are to come in the future reach into David's present so that he is given in every act of worship frequent foretastes of God's salvation and His saving promises to come. We might think of worship as ripples from a rock when it lands in water. The ripples that are furthest away from where the rock landed are like the occasions of worship that are the furthest away in time from God's saving works and the moment at which He fulfills His promises. But the more you follow the movement of the ripples to their source, the closer you get to the rock. And in worship, it's as if we are participating in and following the movement of the ripples 
as they lead us ultimately to that moment where the rock hits the water. It's as if in worship, God's works of salvation and the revealing of His glory that is to be seen most fully in the future breaks now into our present and gives us glimpses of what is to come. And we can think of worship in this way because of the many truths about worship that we even find here being expressed in the psalm. And I want to direct your attention to these truths in our remaining time this morning. I have six of these. So if you like writing notes, you can can write these down. But for one thing, worship, worship is where the beauty of the Lord is seen now. Worship is where the beauty of the Lord is seen. David says, if you look with me at verse 4, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. When David is in the context of worship in the house of God, there is something of the Lord's beauty that he sees. And of course, it's not as if he's seeing some physical form of the Lord. It's not as if the the, the glory of God in, in, in real tangible form as you would maybe see it on the Mount of Transfiguration in the person of Christ. It's not as if week after week and Sabbath after Sabbath, that's the particular glory that David is seeing. No, he sees the Lord with the eyes of faith. It is the worship of God that surrounds him with the works and the character of God. In worship, you could just think of the old covenant context. David would be seeing sacrifices offered with thanksgiving being given in the context of those sacrifices. And he would see in a very tangible way through those sacrifices that his God is a God who atones for sin and who acts on behalf of his people. He is a God who is gracious and merciful and delights to purify and sanctify His people and and consecrate them so that they can be in His presence. In worship, He would hear the praises of the Lord sung and the law of the Lord recited and His ears would be reminded of the Lord's goodness and the righteousness of His ways. He would be reminded about all of the ways that God had acted on behalf of His people in the past. And that would help Him to have an anticipation of the kinds of things that God would do for His people in the future. In worship, he would see the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses said in the law was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. And he would be reminded of the holiness of God and the purity of His person. 
various elements of the worship of God would cause him to see the Lord in faith. As also, it is still the case today that worship causes us to see the beauty of the Lord. When we gather for worship, the Word of God that created the heavens and the earth and which revealed His promises and covenants and decreed His saving works is the same Word around which all of our worship is to be centered. We are to sing the Word. We are to preach the Word. We are to pray the Word. Hear the Word. Taste the Word. Even in the Lord's Supper. And to do this as an assembled congregation of the righteous who belong to the Lord. And as we are washed in the Word, as our ears hear it, as our eyes see it, and our tongues taste it, and our hearts receive it, the Lord, by the work of His Spirit, causes us to see our Christ and His beauty. He causes our hearts to be lifted up to see in a, in a seed form the glories of Christ to come. And even though it is at present a kind of seeing in a mirror dimly, it portends the day that is to come when as a congregation, not only of the saints who are among us now in this local body, but as a mixed multitude from all the nations, we shall see the fullness of the beauty of His face. This is, again, but a foretaste of the magnification of the worship of God that will come at the end of the age. And so worship gives us a foretaste of the beauty of the Lord. But second, we also find that worship is where we are reminded of the coming salvation of God. It is where we are reminded of the coming salvation of God. And here, I don't mean simply that we are reminded through words, though that certainly is the case. But also that there's a kind of participation already in that salvation that is to come. In verse 5, David says of the Lord, he says, for He will hide me in His shelter. Another reference to the the tabernacle. He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. Now, here the day of trouble is a phrase that most often refers to the time when God brings His judgments on the wicked. And sometimes, depending on the context, it can refer to that last final judgment of God that comes upon all the wicked. As we find in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, which says, "...the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble." 
So sometimes it can refer to that. Other times it can refer to judgments that take place in the world. As when God pronounced a judgment against Babylon and He said in Jeremiah 51 verse 2 that her land will be emptied when people come against her from every side on the day of trouble. When her judgment day comes. And here in our psalm, David is saying that when this day of judgment, this day of trouble comes in whatever form it may come in, he will find that the Lord's place, place of worship is that which becomes His refuge. While everything outside of it will be the place of trouble. And in like manner, the church, which is the assembled people of God, is of course described in the New Testament as a new temple. A new shelter of the Lord. And to be united to this shelter to be, as Peter says, a living stone in this temple is to be in the place of refuge that will be preserved in the day of trouble. When God's judgments come upon the earth at the return of Christ, when the day of trouble comes, everything that is outside of Christ Everything that is outside of His temple, outside of His body, all things will face disaster and calamity. But those who by faith have joined themselves to Christ will find themselves in a place of safety as the fires of judgment are kindled around them. And when we gather together for worship, and when we come together to sing together, and to praise our God together, we are in a very real sense participating now in what is to come. We are participating in the glories of the Lord as our refuge. Because one of the things that we see happening at the very end of the present age is that when God's judgments come upon the wicked, and the marriage supper of the Lamb comes, and Christ and His people are united together, one of the things that we see is that there is a great multitude who are singing His praises, who are worshiping Him at the end, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. They are worshiping the Lord in a glorified state even as we worship the Lord now in anticipation of that glorified state. We are now getting a sample, a, a, a little appetizer of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are doing now what will be done once His judgments and salvation comes. We are participating in the future, now in the present. And so worship is the response of God's people who have been saved from the wrath to come. And as we worship together in anticipation of that day, we partake in that day even in a small way, now. 
Third, and related to this, worship is where we sing in triumph. Worship is where we sing in triumph. Notice with me what David says in verse 6. He says, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David here preemptively sings songs of victory before the victory has even been given to him. We know, again, that there were numerous occasions throughout his life where he found his life being threatened by his enemies. And yet here, he can confidently say that his head will be lifted up above his enemies. He will be saved from them. And because he knows he will be saved, he resolves to sing God's praise for a salvation that he has not yet received. It's so certain to come, though, that he can sing now of the victory he will have over his enemies. He can sing preemptively of His coming salvation because He trusts in God's promises, because He trusts in God's covenants, and He knows that God's covenants cannot fail. And so if God promised that He would establish the throne of David, and if He promised that He would give David rest from all His enemies, as He did in the Davidic covenant, Even if that throne appeared at times to be threatened, he could sing of God's salvation because he knew it would come. There's no plot. There's no conspiracy. There's no evil that can thwart the promises of God. They are the most fixed and sure thing in the world. You know, we're often told today, right, by the, 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 the secularists and the, the, the scientists who are more into scientism than, than actual, uh, actual, actual facts, but, but you know, we're, we're often told that the most sure thing that we have in this life is what we can see, right? Whatever we can observe with our own eyes, right? That, that's the most dependable thing that we can rely upon. I tell you, I I hear stories all the time of people who think they've seen things that never happened. The most sure things are not those things that we may be able to touch, those things that we may be able to see. That is not to question all reality itself, of course, but that's not the most sure thing. The most sure thing is the Word of God. It is the promises of God that will stand forever. And David believes in those. He knows that's true. He's standing upon those promises as his rock. And because of that, 
he can already sing of the salvation he will receive. And likewise, friends, when we worship, we do not sing songs of defeat. We do not sing that the Lord's promises will fail or that His salvation will not come or that the cross has not washed our sins or that the resurrection will never happen. We're not singing about our sins overcoming us and death having the victory. Even though that may seem to be the case right now. Even though I may be entangled in sin. Even though as I look around, there's death everywhere. How can I look and see all of this death and come to the conclusion that death is not the reigning power in the world? Because I believe in God's promises. I believe in His Word. I believe in the works that He's already done and the ones that He has promised to do in the future. And so even if death appears to be reigning now, I don't sing about death's reigning power. I sing about its downfall. We sing songs of triumph and victory. We sing of the coming day when faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And because of that, what do we sing? It is well. Now with my soul. And the confidence that we sing with and the hopefulness that we have is not ultimately rooted in all of the various uncertainties of life. It's not that we believe that if we have bad health, it will get better, or if we are reviled, the reviling will cease at some point, or if we are persecuted, we are guaranteed to experience relief from persecution in this life. No, the confidence and the triumphal ground of our joyful singing is rooted in the end of things. It is rooted in the conclusion of the story and in the promise of God that if Christ has been raised, and He has, then we too will be raised with Him. Because that's what God said would happen. It's in the promise that the great enemies of sin and death will be crushed under our feet. And because God has promised these things, Although we have not yet received them, like David, we sing in triumph. Because those promises will never fail. So all of the sin, all of the death, all of the tribulation is nothing in comparison to the glories that are to come. We can look at death in the face and we can mock it as an enemy that is bleeding out and is losing its life day by day. We sing in worship the triumphal promises of God because we ground all of our hopes in His unbreakable Word. Fourth, We find that worship is also where our prayers are offered 
and answered. It is where our prayers are offered and answered. It is in the context of worship. When David lifts up his prayer to the Lord in verses 7 to 10, he calls upon God to hear his cry. He resolves to seek the Lord's face while he asks the Lord not to cast him off or to hide his face from him. And he's confident that the Lord will answer his prayer as we see in verse 10. There he uses what is probably more likely a conditional clause. And he says, as the the CSB puts it, that even if my father and my mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. or The Lord will take me in. David has no doubt that the Lord will answer his prayer because he has no doubt that he's praying in the will of the Lord. He's not asking here or anywhere else for 10,000 chariots or for riches or for fame or for ease, none of which are promises that are ever given to him or that are given to us. He asked to see the face of God and that He would not be forsaken. He asked the Lord to be gracious to him, which is no more than asking for God to be who He said He would be to those who seek Him. From the very beginning, our God has revealed Himself as a God who delights to be gracious and to be merciful to sinners. Even to Israel. Despite all of their repeated rebellions, He constantly sent prophets to them, telling them to repent and to turn away from their sin. And He promised that if the sinner turned from his sin, the Lord would be gracious to forgive. He has been that God since the very beginning. David does not ask the Lord to do anything more than He has already said He would do. And when we pray to the Lord in worship, or when we pray to the Lord even outside of the context of worship, this too is how we are to pray. We must pray especially for those things that we know are in the will of God. And of course, that does not mean that we can never pray for godly desires that we may have. You know, if we, we have somebody who we're concerned about and who, who they really are sick and they've got some you know, dramatic you know, health concern, it is totally okay and right and proper and good to, to express those desires to the Lord and pray that the Lord would make them well. But we should certainly, more than anything, make it a habit to pray for those things that God has indeed promised as he promised to sanctify you to make you holy then you pray for that father sanctify me in your truth your word is truth father make me holy has he promised to be gracious and to forgive all your sins in Christ, right? 
then you pray for that. Lord, forgive me. Wash me of my sins. Cleanse me of the sins I've committed against You. Make me new. Has He promised to establish His kingdom on earth and to conquer death itself? Then pray for that very thing. Father, may Your kingdom come. Lord, come quickly. Bring Your kingdom on earth. Has He promised to teach you His ways? Then you pray, Lord, teach me Your ways. Show me the glories in Your Word. Show me the paths of life. Which leads us to our fifth point. Which is that worship is where we learn God's ways. Worship is where we learn God's ways. As David's prayer continues in verses 11-12, to this is the very next thing he asks for. He says, Teach me Your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. And we find as well that he desires to know God's ways not just as a matter of, of head knowledge, but in such a way that he can apply it to his troubles. Because he goes on to say that he wants to be taught the ways of God because of my enemies. I need to know Your ways, Lord, because of my enemies. He needs to know how to respond. He needs to know how to conduct himself. He needs to know how to live in a manner that is pleasing to God even when he is being slandered. And when men are speaking all kinds of things falsely against him. And when men are trying to kill him. What is he to do? How is he to act? And of course, the way you learn the ways of the Lord is through His Word. In David's case, he had the Torah, especially. The first five books of the Old Testament. Probably some others as well. Joshua, Ruth, Judges. In our case, we have the whole canon. Old New Testaments. But it is this Word, it is the Bible that teaches us God's ways. This is why Paul commanded Timothy to make it his work to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. And he commands Timothy to do that thing. When, when, you, when you have the saints gathered, Timothy... When you are shepherding them, pastoring them, make it your work to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And I can tell you, that public reading would have been far more reading of Scripture than we do here on a Sunday morning. And I know we, we purposely read larger chunks of Scripture, which is not usually normal. In other places, you get as little Scripture as possible. But I'm telling you, even what we read would have been nothing in comparison to what would have been read on a regular basis in the synagogues and in early church worship. Because you have to remember, most people don't have their personal copies of the Bible carrying around. 
They don't have Scripture on parchments and scrolls. They don't have it on an iPhone. If you're going to have the Word of God, you've got to hear it. So the public assembly of the body of Christ becomes the place and the time in which you're going to sit and you're going to listen. And you're going to hear the law and the prophets and the Gospels read publicly. Large chunks of it so that you can commit it to memory. He commands Timothy, feed them the Word. Read the Word. And even beyond the public reading, he charges him in the presence of the Lord, of God, of angels. Preach the Word. In season and out of season. When people want it, when people don't want it, you preach the Word. Devote yourself to the ministry of the Word. It is the Word that is to be the central aspect of biblical worship. And it is the Word that must be proclaimed. It is a great shame and an indictment against many churches when the Word is relegated to nothing more than a few Bible quotations here and there while the preacher spends the majority of his time telling jokes or telling stories or just giving some moral lessons here and there disconnected from the story of Scripture. The preaching of the Word of God is not a matter of just stringing together some random verses that may have the same word used in them. What we need in worship and what we need a lot more of is for men to take the point of the passage and make that the point of the sermon. That's what God has inspired. That's what He has placed His authority in. The point of the passage is the Word of God. And that must be what is proclaimed to the people of God. It should be the regular diet of the people of God. There is certainly a time and place to address particular subjects that need to be addressed. But the regular diet of God's people must be the exposition of Scripture. If the passage is about sin, you preach about sin. If the passage is about grace, you preach about grace. If it's about worship, you preach about worship. If it's about marriage, you preach about marriage. It is God who dictates the diet of God's people. But if you can sit under the preaching and teaching ministry of a church for years on end and come away not knowing anything more about the Bible, as many people do, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? If that can happen, you're not hearing the preaching of the Word of God. You're hearing TED Talks. You're hearing philosophers. You're hearing life coaches. You're hearing the art of rhetoric 
and public speaking, you may be hearing a lot of things. You may be hearing things that sound persuasive, but you're not hearing the Word of God. And for the Christian, to be robbed of the preaching of the Word is to be starved. It is the worst thing. I remember myself, when I first became a Christian, I joined a church because I knew nowhere else to go and the Word was not preached. It was completely absent. And during that time, it was like existing on a starvation diet. I'm, I'm reading the Word and I love my time when I'm reading the Word, but in the worship of the Word of God, where's the Word? I need to be fed. I need to know what is the testimony of the Lord? What does this mean? What does it say? What does it imply? What does it require of me? I need the Bible and I need to know it and hear it and feed on it and it wasn't there. It was like being an Old Testament worshiper who would travel to Jerusalem to go and worship in the temple and when you get there, the temple's gone. <laughs> There's no worship. There's no God. God has abandoned this place. It is Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. But in the kindness and mercy of God and His providence, when I heard preaching for the very first time, it was like eating a feast after having been starved for quite some time. That's what the soul of those who know the Lord need. It needs to eat what God has commanded for His people to be fed with. When Jesus spoke to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, He charged him to feed His sheep. What's He feeding them with? It's not the fish He just caught. It's the Word. It's the Gospel. It's what Peter had learned from his own master. It's the words he had heard. It's the prophets he had known. It was the law he had grown up hearing, read, now seen in the glories of Christ. We are to feed the people with the Word of God because it is that Word that is good. And so worship is where we hear the Word and we learn God's ways. But then last of all, worship is where our hopes are strengthened. Worship is where our hopes are strengthened. We find at the very end of the psalm, David declaring his hopes that the God of life will sustain and give him life. And perhaps we even find here a hint of the hope and the resurrection. David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he commands 
all who hear this psalm, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Every week, when we are gathered together, this is what we're learning to do. We're learning to wait for the Lord. We're learning to have our hopes both clarified and strengthened. We are reminded of the promises of God. We are reminded from His Word that He is a God who cleanses sinners of their sins. We are reminded that because of the work of Christ, God has exalted Him at His right hand. He has given Him authority. He has given Him a kingdom. All things belong to Him and all things will be consummated under Him. We are reminded of the glories of the new creation to come. We are reminded of all the things we are to be waiting for now. We have to learn how to live in light of those promises and in anticipation of those promises. Many of them are not yet here. So as we are waiting for the glories to come, how are we to live? And then we wait. We wait for them to come. And this waiting, this is not just a kind of waiting where we lose confidence, where we're disappointed week after week that the Lord has not come. It's the kind of waiting that builds and grows and endures and is strengthened. It's like lava or or magma, right? Building up pressure. Strengthening and strengthening and strengthening until that time when it erupts. And the hopes and the waiting for the Christian is like that. As the Lord tarries as we eat more of His Word, as we sing of His promises and His glories, as we are fixing the eyes of our hearts on those glories to come, the waiting builds and it strengthens. And it will continue to do so until the right time that the Lord Himself has appointed. In the same way that Paul tells us that Christ Jesus came into the world in His first advent at just the right time. Just as God had determined, just as God had ordered all things, Christ came into the world at the perfect time to lay His his life down for sinners and to provide that first conquest of sin and death so also at God's right appointed time will He return. And the hopes and the waiting that has built up for so long and has strengthened will then erupt into glory forever and ever. And so in worship, we learn how to wait, how to continue on, 
with eager expectation so that when the glories of the final day comes, we will find ourselves at the marriage supper of the Lamb, joining in with the mixed multitude from all nations, singing at the top of our lungs, the Lord God the Almighty reigns. And now we get a foretaste. It builds. So worship, friends, it, it gives us a lot of things. It fixes our eyes on Christ. It gives us a kind of participation of what is to come. But as we are commanded to wait for the glories of the Lord, it strengthens that waiting and that hoping. And we will find that in the final day, all of those hopes will not have been in vain. They will be unto the glory of God and unto our everlasting joy. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, we thank You for what You have given to us in Christ and in the worship of His holy name. We thank You that in Your mercy You sent to us the Word. And You made us not only guests in Your house, but heirs in Your house. And there are many promises that You have given to us of which we can barely imagine the glory that is to come. In the same way that many of the people under the Old Covenant could not imagine something better than the temple. When Christ came, something better than the temple came. And so Lord, I pray that as we worship today and as long as You tarry, that you would strengthen our hopes and that we would indeed wait for the Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.